Hey, Kyle, this is Don Mira. I'm calling you from Valle de Guadalupe down in Mexico, the wine country. Anyway, I just got done listening to your latest interview with Dr. Nichols. Wow, that was amazing. I'm really grooving on it, and you have such a great diversification of people you're interviewing. Keep up that great work. Thought I'd share with you and the listeners about an app called My Little Plastic Footprint. It's really had an impact on the way that I look at plastics, how I consume plastics, and how I, I handle plastics. I really appreciate all your hard work. Again, keep it up, man. We need you. Thank you for sending that in, Don. You heard of My Little Plastic Footprint. I have not checked out that app, but thank you for letting us know about that, Don. I'm coming to you from Santa Cruz, California, with a strong cup of coffee in my hand. I've already had too much. I sometimes feel like after the first few sips of coffee, it doesn't make me any more productive. It doesn't allow me to think any more clearly. It just makes me sweat more. And it's not the athletic sweat of like, yeah, I just ran some stairs. I'm killing it, bro. It's like this bubbly, putrid, like if you put manure and paint in a bucket together and mixed them around. That's how my armpits smell right now. I was in Chile once a number of years ago, and I took a bus up to the north uh, into a town called Iquique with my buddy Chachi, who's a surf photographer. And there are all these great little waves in Iquique, all these little reef breaks that are kind of shallow and um, a lot of boogie boarders surf them. And I was out there and I did a little floater on the in section and I came down on my left shoulder and I dislocated it, it popped fully out um, and I couldn't set it back for a couple hours. And then I had to get a flight home and they strapped my arm down to my chest so it wouldn't pop out again. And I remember that plane flight so well because my armpit stunk worse that it ever has in my entire life. It's a fucking far flight back to from Iquica back to Santiago and then all the way back up to San Francisco. My arm was strapped to my chest and I I swear, you know, there's uh probably some some new life forms that uh that formed under my armpit on that flight. So, don't know where I was going with that, but I'm really excited to bring you this podcast today because Mark Sponsler is a fucking gangster and he was nice enough to come over to my house and uh, drop some knowledge. He's one of the best surf explainers I've ever met. Um, He's the creator of stormsurf.com, lead forecaster, one of the best forecasters in the world. I use stormsurf all the time um, when I'm looking for waves around the world. And it's a really fun language to learn, the language of surf forecasting. I feel like I'm just at the tip of the iceberg, um, but it really, uh, what it, you know, what it can do is it can allow you to have the best day of your life. When you look back on your life and you think, like, oh man, that was a special one. As surfers, it tends to be a day where we scored perfect waves with no one around. And usually the way that you do that, the way you you manifest those days are by getting good at swell forecasting. So I hope that you find this interview exciting, entertaining, and helpful. hope that there's some good takeaways for you. This is an ad-free podcast, and I rely on listeners like you to donate. So if you get value out of this show, feel free to click below the bio on your phone here and There's a little link that says, buy me a cup of coffee on Patreon, because if you're listening to this podcast, even once a month, pretend that you're in a coffee shop with me and we're hanging out and you want to just buy me a coffee. That would be super cool. And if not, don't worry about it. Just keep listening. Enjoy the show. Share it with a friend. Um, Love getting all the feedback from all of you. All right. I'm going to go take a shower, clean up this toxic waste spill. And I'll see you guys soon. I hope that you enjoy this conversation with the creator of stormsurf.com, Mark Sponsler. 
Kyle Tierman here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. How was the wave? How were the waves uh, just now? Nice uh, little southern hemi swell running, uh, three feet at 17 seconds, which is about head high, a little bit overhead. Kind of mixed up, though. Yeah, yeah, lots of wind swell. So this whole year has been uh, really dominated by La Nina, and what La Nina tends to do is amplify the high pressure that sits in the Gulf of Alaska and off the California coast, and so that makes a lot of north wind, which is great for generating wind swell, but not so great if you want clean swell, you know, like southern hemi swell. Well, like what we're getting right now. So you get this crossed up mess that's kind of looks warbly and it's not the, the the typical thing you think of when you look at the perfect wave, you know, the long line. Instead, there's ridges running across and it kind of jumbles around. Yeah, it was a little mixed up. Hard to find the top of the lip. It, definitely. Or if you found it, sometimes you'd be uh, embedded in it <laughs> heading to the bottom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right on, man. Um, so let's start with the basics. Okay. Um, I'm going to let you run wild with it and I'll guide when need be, but uh, you're such a, a well-versed communicator on this subject. Um, I'm going to let you start where you would like to start. And you know where it all starts? Either up in the North Pacific or deep in the South Pacific, depending on where you want to go. Since it's summertime, let's talk South Pacific. So the, typically what happens is you get a storm uh, down in the Roaring Forties, they call it, down south of Forty South in the preferably under New Zealand. And you go, how can a swell possibly go from New Zealand the whole way to California and survived intact? Well, it can. If you get strong enough wind, so the period of a swell, and those that know what period is, is all determined about by the speed of the winds that are acting on the ocean surface. So if you have a storm with 35 knot winds, then you get maybe a 13 or a 14 second period. But if you have a storm with 55 knot winds or 60 knot winds, then you get upwards 19, 20 second period. Okay? And the more wind interacting on the ocean surface, the longer your period, the longer the period. That means the faster the swell is moving. And what that does is when, so when the swell eventually reaches your beach, like a, uh, a reef off of Pleasure Point, even if it's small, one foot at 20 seconds will get you a three-foot wave, maybe four feet, um, versus a wind swell, which has a really short period, like an eight-second period swell. You need five feet of swell at eight seconds to get you the equivalent of a four-foot wave. So for south-facing summer breaks, long period is what you want. And the key here is if your period's more than 16 seconds, it can travel extreme distances and experience very little decay. Short period waves dissipate quickly. Long period waves travel much further. And the longer they travel, the more groomed they get and the more organized they get. So from a pure surfer's perspective, long period swell is what you want. And does period stay the same regardless of distance? So initially what happens is as the swell is first generated, the period, it's a jumbled mess of eight-second period waves, 10-second, 14, 17 seconds. This is where the initial impact is. Yeah, they call it like the fetch area, yep. where the wind is interacting with the ocean surface. Think the, per uh, the perfect storm. You know, the wind's blowing, you're in a boat, and it's going up and down, and things are just out of control. That's uh, the fetch area. But... Eventually, those waves radiate away from the fetch area, and as they radiate away from the fetch area, they start losing some size, but what they g lose in size, they gain in period. And what happens is the more energetic waves that leave that fetch area start 
traveling faster and faster, moving out ahead. So typically here in California, you're 6,500 nautical miles away from New Zealand, let's say. So the first part of a swell, you'll always see these longer period, 22-second, 20-second period, small waves moving in. And then what happens is the less energetic waves sort of follow in behind. All these waves, they sort themselves out as they're making that 6,000 nautical mile journey. So the, the longer period ones, which have the more energy race out ahead and then you know the slower ones sort of fill in behind do you use the sound model as a way to explain swells to people do you find that that is coherent uh, like like sound like uh, yeah sound like waves. I'm screaming down a hallway. You're screaming down a hallway. There's amplitude and period, and over time the amplitude is going to to decay, but the period, the tone of our voice will stay relatively similar. I, I actually haven't tried that, but that's a good analogy, and I like that because all waves, whether they're light waves, sound waves, earthquake waves, they're all, they all have the same characteristics, right? It's energy traveling through a medium, be, be it the earth, the air, the water, it's all the same. And the period is the time when the highest point of one wave, the time between the highest point of one wave and the highest point of the next wave. Exactly. Swell. Yes, exactly. So imagine you're on a boat in the ocean, right? And, you, and you're on the boat and the boat gets lifted up as a swell passes under the boat and then it falls back down in the into the trough of the next wave and then get and then rises up again so and typically for uh wind driven waves the period is anywhere from four to six seconds which would be just chop white caps you know nothing you'd want to surf and then the the ideal is much longer period which is in the range of 17 to 20 seconds but you can get up to a 33 second period wave but only under the most extreme circumstances generated by, by winds 70 knots or more or by an earthquake Ah, now that's a different story. Underwater earthquake. Now we're talking tsunami. And guess what the period is on a tsunami? Minutes. Th 300 plus seconds. So Tate, bring me into an example of a tsunami. <laughs> um, oh, which one? There, the, uh, the, the, the earthquake off Japan. Um, Fukushima, Fukushima? Yep. Generated tidal wave that I, I wasn't there, but I was watching it, and I know guys that were sitting out at Mavericks and surfed the tidal waves, and they said literally they would sit there and... So there's so the period's so long. There's so much energy. You could I was watching on a cam, and you could literally watch the water draining out of the harbor over a period of minutes. And that's just the the, the one wave approaching. And these are not big waves. We're talking, you know, four or five feet with a period of three hundred seconds or whatever it was. It's a good example of how important period is when generating power, though. Absolutely. It, it and so anyway, it would you could. Literally watch this river of water rushing out of the harbor, and then the waves came in, and the guys that were out there said literally, as like when when the the wave was drawing water out ahead, they would get sucked hundreds of yards out past the lineup, <laughs> and then a, a wave would come in. And they would literally move almost a half mile inland, and they weren't even trying to catch the wave. It was just that much water was moving. Wow. Oh, man. All right, so we got amplitude, we got period. Most swells are generated either um, below New Zealand or up near the Aleutian Islands and the Kamchatka Peninsula. Is that correct? Yeah. So, okay. in, so in the summer, let's say the swell window is really anywhere in the South Pacific, preferable for the Pleasure Point area. My preference is, you know, a more southwesterly angle, which would put the storm under New Zealand. But you can get plenty of surf, if, even if it's due south of California, which would be like 120 west if you go look at a map, but way down south. And then in the winter, the swell window is anywhere from from, you know, the Gulf of Alaska, the whole way over to Kamchatka, like you were saying, or even down as far as Japan. So the other prime little freak uh, swells that can be really great are hurricanes that spin up off of Japan. They track north. They get caught by the jet stream. They blow up into an extratropical storm, and then they start moving northeast towards the international dateline. But, you know, you can start picking up energy from them when they're literally off of Japan. So that would be like a 
260, 270 degree swell, but it's from 3,000 miles away. How do you explain what the jet stream is? Ah, good. Okay, so the jet stream is literally a river of uh, wind energy. It travels, so there's basically a North Pacific, or a, uh, I'll call it a Northern Hemisphere jet that circles, let's say, roughly around 40 to 50 degrees north across the Northern Hemisphere. And then there's also another jet stream, the Southern Hemi jet stream, doing the same thing down around the Roaring Forties, like we were talking about, around the uh, Antarctica. Okay, and of course, there's variations on all that, but basically, it's just the way the atmosphere flows, and it, it, it has undulations in that it'll It'll drift, track to the north, it'll track to the south. When it tracks to the south, it creates sort of a dip, like what we're talking the northern hemisphere. It'll track to the south and create this sort of dip, and I, I can't, it's hard to explain it, but that is actually what fuels the development of storms when it makes that southward dip. Gotcha. So let's follow a storm. I know that we're kind of jumping around yeah, here yeah, we're all, talking. quite a bit, but I want to um, create a picture for someone. Let's say you know we're in the summertime right now. Okay. Let's track a storm from its inception. Why don't you tell, you, tell me you know, why it starts and then where it will go and just take me along that journey. Okay, we'll do a summertime swell off of a standard New Zealand sort of storm. Okay. Okay, so what you get is the jet stream, the South Pacific jet stream will push under New Zealand like it always does, but then for whatever reason, because of, you know, a myriad of factors, let's say it makes a turn to the north, right under New Zealand, and starts tracking up the New Zealand coast, and then eventually it'll fall to the south, maybe, uh, you know, a thousand miles east of there. But what that'll do is that'll set up low pressure off of New Zealand. Okay, I'll start, and the stronger the winds are in the jet, and normally winds are like 80 or 90 knots, you know, 100 miles an hour, something like it. But if those winds start building to 130, 140, maybe even 150 knots, that really, that's the fuel that lights up the low pressure system. It creates deeper pressure in that eddy or in that, they call it a trough, really. And so what a trough does is, the, that's the hallmark of low pressure in the upper atmosphere, but it'll also manifest itself down on the surface. And all we care about is winds interacting with the ocean surface. So as that trough builds, low pressure builds, and then winds start circulating on the ocean surface southeast of New Zealand. We'll say they're 30 knots. They build to 40, 50, 60 knots. Now, you got to have fetch with, with speed. It has to be over a decent size area. It has to be blowing towards your location, and it has to be over, you know, a certain amount of time. So the higher the winds, the larger area they're blowing over, the longer they're blowing over that area, and the better they're aimed at you, all the better. And right. so, so the ideal storm is, of course, some big uh, 60 knot winds off of New Zealand aimed to the northeast over a thousand nautical miles of fetch and in position for two to three days. And then you'll end up with 50 foot seas and a 22 to 25 second period swell eventually. But anyway, okay, so I've jumped ahead. So the storm starts radiate, starts building under New Zealand, right? Perfect storm, giant seas, you're out in your boat, you're getting tossed all around, you don't want to be there. If you're smart, no mariner would ever be near that. But what happens is eventually those raw energetic seas We'll call them 50-foot seas. And what that means is seas is the highest one-third of the waves in that fetch area. There's actually individual waves that can be up to twice as high. So there could be individual waves, you know, when all the chop and all the swell and everything lines up just right that peaks up to 100 feet high in that area. Rogue waves, we're talking. But we're not going to go down that rabbit hole yet. Anyway, so these average 50-foot seas start radiating off to the northeast, right? And they're all raw and churned up and jumbled. But what happens over about, after they get about 800 miles away from all the wind, all of a sudden, there's no wind anymore. And all of a sudden, these giant lumps start grooming themselves out. They start looking more organized. They start looking like swell, like that you and I would want to go surf, only massively massively huge and so they continue on for another thousand nautical miles and hey there's tahiti 
oh my God, Tahiti's going to get a, you know, they're down to, let's say, only 15 feet high now, but they instead of having a nine-second period, they have an 18-second period on them. And all these massive lines start slamming uh, uh, Tahiti, massive surf, okay? Then they go another couple thousand miles. They hit Hawaii, South Shore Hawaii. Maybe now it's down to six or seven feet at 20 plus seconds. So the period is increasing as it's moving across the ocean. Yes, it is. Definitely. So what that means is the distance between the individual waves is getting further. The height is decreasing, but the energy is increasing as the waves get more organized. Uh, It's interesting that energy can increase over time. You'd think that that would be counterintuitive. Uh, absolutely. But it, do, it does happen that way. The key is to have it increase and still have enough. So it lo- as it loses amplitude, it gains in period. And then it hits us. Eventually, yes. After hitting Hawaii, then two days later, it arrives in Californians. What was a 50-foot sea state might hit here as four to five feet at 22 seconds. But that would be 10-foot 10, 10 surf. Maybe bigger, you know, at, at the spots that, you know, so bathymetry ca- pays, it plays a key part, too. The uh, How the ocean bottom is set up, and there's lots of good breaks along uh, the Pleasure Point area that literally when you get this long period swell, it amplifies the size of the wave. So what would be a 10-foot wave at a beach break all of a sudden turns into maybe a 12 or a 13 or 14-foot face at select spots. Because of the bottom contours of the ocean. Exactly. It literally, you know, causes the, uh, you get a shallow point of reef sticking out in the ocean, and so that, the wave will interact with that and jump up more, where on either side, to the right or the left, that it won't, but that energy will feed into the middle, so you get a big, giant peak that'll huck out and break and be, you know, a good wave. How'd you get into this, man? I don't know. <laughs> I love the enthusiasm with which you speak about it all. Well, it's It's surfing. exciting. Yeah, I mean, if you like to surf, it's just a natural thing. You go, I'm riding these waves, and where'd they come from? You know, when's the next swell coming? Well, you know, so, so here's the backstory, right? I used to live in Florida, and there's no surf in Florida, really. Is that where you grew up? Yeah, yeah, in Florida, in Cocoa Beach, Kelly Slater's hometown, right? So, and the deal was, oh, you know, and this was back in the late 60s, there was no internet. You know, it's like, I'm like your grandfather. I remember when there wasn't telephones and we didn't have color TV, you know. But back then there was no Internet. You had a newspaper and and there the only way you could get a sense of what was going on is they would post a little black and white satellite photo. And the satellites had only been up. Well, this is late 60s, early 70s. They had only been up maybe 10 years. Right. So it was a big deal to go open the paper, see a satellite photo, and you could get a sense of what was going on in the ocean out beyond you, you know. And and so the whole deal was always looking for hurricanes. Right. And then once you saw a hurricane and, you you know, the National Weather Service would start reporting, then you'd start going, well, when's the swell going to hit? How big is it going to get? You know, and, and then all of a sudden you're down the rabbit hole. It's this like, would come out in the paper. Yes. In the newspaper. I mean, who reads it? Who gets a newspaper anymore? Right. <laughs> now, even uh, thinking about reading the newspaper for swell forecasting is so foreign now. Well, well there wasn't even a swell yeah. forecast. There was a picture and you would look at the picture and then try to make some sense of, well, how far away is that and how high are the winds? In it? You know, and you could get you had your little weather radio box that I'm sure most people still kind of vaguely remember, you know, and, and they would report, well, Tropical Storm XYZ is, you know, five. 500 miles east of the Bahamas with winds 50 miles an hour. You all better take shelter now. But that was about, you know, there was no uh, exactly how many nautical miles is it from my beach or my house? And what are the winds aimed exactly in my direction? And how high are the seas in that fetch? You know, if you don't have any of that information, you can't make estimates on, well, what's the period of the swell going to be? How big is it going to be? When's it going to arrive at my location? But the cool thing about all that was, is it 
made you think. And, you know, I tried to develop a methodology to figure it out. And it was moderately successful. In the end, I was able to sort of chart out some rough areas that when a storm is in this location in the ocean and it has certain conditions like X speed winds and it's heading in a certain direction, that the odds for swell arriving at my location are going to be a lot better than a lot of other possible configurations. That still holds true for the South Pacific. You can literally now, and I'm jumping away from the one topic going back to our original topic, but if you know what you're doing, you can literally look at a storm now and say, okay, I see it in the South Pacific. I know what its seas are. I know what directions it's traveling. I know that it's in my swell window because I know all the great circle paths coming from there. And I know the distance and, you know, just eyeball it. You can sketch out now and say, okay, well, in about, you know, eight days, it's going to arrive and it's going to be about this big, you know, without having to do all the math, I've got it down enough to where you can almost eyeball it. Would you keep a captain's log at that time? Uh, I've got a cat. So every swell that's meaningful, I literally, I, I tell my buddies, I run the numbers on it, right? You know, I calculate the distance. You know, every six to 12 hours, every, let's say every 12 hours of the storm's life, I track where it is, its position, how far away it is from where we are. Um, what swell angle is it on relative to Pleasure Point? Okay, um, and then how high are the seas? How high are the winds? And from that, you can calculate. Okay, I estimate the period is going to be X, and if I know what the period is, then I know what speed the swell's traveling at. And if you know what speed it's at, then it's a simple matter of if I'm going 20 miles an hour and I got 6,000 nautical miles to go, I'll get there in you know 300 hours, whatever. And that works great. The trickier part is the size. There's uh, swell decay charts you can get, right? That that say well. If you have, you know, there's ones that do it by wind, just pure wind speed. 35 knot winds over a 600 nautical mile fetch aimed at you for 24 hours will get you a sea state of blump, blump, blump at 6,000 miles away or something like that. You know, so you can go that way or you can cheat and just use NOAA's wave models. And, and they, you know, give you a, a pretty good idea. But if you don't understand the the limits of the models and how to read them, they will often misstate it. They'll overstate it. They'll mix. If there's two different swells running at the same time, they'll mix them together and say, well, if you have a, a three-foot at 17-second period swell and a two-foot at 15-second at period swell, we'll tell you it's going to be five feet at 16 seconds. But that's not really the case. Swells don't combine. Every swell is a discrete, unique event unto itself, with the one exception of sometimes wind swells that combine and make bigger wind, you know, wind junky swell at your beach. But is that different than construction? Constructive interference, or are you saying uh, that constructive interference isn't really a thing? Um, constructive interference is a thing. It, I was actually going to go the other way. The common myth of destructive interference: a southern hemi swell with a large wind swell coming in the opposite direction does not decrease the size of the southern hemi swell coming at you. Huh? You would think, using the you know, the analogy of two people talking at each other that their sound waves would decrease or, or kind interfere of with interfere each with each other you would think that but here's where the period that we the period discussion that we talked about earlier the longer the period once your swell is over 16 second periods two swells can travel that 16 second period swell could travel through any other swell and there the interference literally doesn't exist so once you reach a certain energy state, you are a god unto yourself. But constructive interference is a thing. That's two swells moving in the same direction. They can amplify. They can up to a certain extent. What I, so let's, let's, let's flip the conversation to the northern hemisphere now. and Let's say talk Mavericks, let's say. And let's talk a big north swell coming out of the Gulf of Alaska at 10 feet at 15 seconds. And then you get a... Eight foot at eight second period wind swell coming from the same direction at you is that good a good thing no so so typically what happens is when you get wind swell and ground swell mixed together it just turns into a jumbled mess and especially if the wind swell is very local it literally fills the troughs of the long period swells and you you're, you're expecting a 15 foot wave at Mavericks and you go it's Maybe it's 15 foot, but it's more like 10 to 12 feet. <laughs> yeah. and just looks junky, yeah. and I don't want anything to do with yeah, it. Yeah, I'm out here getting cold. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so 
the pref at least let's talk from a surfer's perspective. The preference really is one swell at a time, no other swell in the water, especially when you're talking big surf, you know, and a singular pure swell lines up a lot better at a reef break, breaks a lot better. Just go look at Pleasure Point right now, and you can see the wind swell running through it and kind of hacking it apart. But beach breaks can have um, combo swells that make the waves peakier. Is that correct? So, so that uh, in that instance, I would agree with you that co- the constructive interference is a good thing because I used to live in Florida, and any wind swell is a good thing. And the more of them you get, the better it is right. because yes, they one from the north, one from the south, they will interact and create a peakier sort of scenario. And if you have peaks, then the peaks are a lot higher than the individual waves themselves. So in that situation, yes. Uh, so maybe I'm just a snob now. And, <laughs> and I don't want to ride windswell unless there's absolutely no choice. And then if that's the case, yes, I'll go for constructive interference. But my preference is never to surf those conditions. <laughs> so going back to the days of looking at photos in the newspaper of storms, what was the next great innovation in swell forecasting? So I'm surfing and my buddy goes to me, I've got this box, I got it. And you turn it on and there's a guy talking to you and they're telling you not only about what they think's going to happen with the surf, but there's also these things called buoys out there in the ocean, and they report data. And remember, there was no internet, so there was no way to get to the buoy data except to listen to the weather radio. The little box was the, was the weather radio that you bought from Radio Shack for $10, or probably back in that day it was $5. And you, you push it on, and this guy literally, it was a tape loop, and they'd, you know, they'd run through a whole series of, okay, the buoy 46014, off a point arena is reporting seas this hour of eight feet at 14 seconds and they'd go up and down the coast and read the buoys you know and i my thing at night was put the weather radio on while i'm going to sleep and they'd run through all the buoys you know and i'm making my plans for tomorrow and then half the time i'd fall asleep and wake up at two in the morning the weather radio is still going but the battery's almost dead and it's you know so old school. So those buoys were put out by NOAA? Yep. And they were there smart. I mean, it was for mariner's safety. That's what buoys are all about. They're not there for the surfers. <laughs> they're, they're there for commercial fishing ve- vehicles mainly and, you know, uh, recreational fishermen so that they don't go out. and So they, one, have a sense of what they're getting into when they leave harbor. And two, if there is an upcoming swell that they, they can listen to their weather radio out, out on the boat and know oh, I better get out of here because conditions are changing. So what year did the black box come out? Oh, gosh. I'm trying to remember somewhere. This is back in the Florida days. Yeah, I'm thinking it was late 70s, something like that, or early, early 80s. And so we lived by the black box for 10 years, better part of 10 years, you know. Day and night, listening to the box. I had one for my car. I had one for the for the bedroom. I had one for the living room. So I always had one nearby. And when did you make swell forecasting your profession? Um, so somewhere about the time I moved out here. So I was do I had rudimentary forecasts, right? But then I uh, I moved out here in when was it ninety five, and. Um, and I moved to half, you know, the Half Moon Bay area, and I ran into Jeff Clark, and I want, you know, I, the whole deal was I want to go surf Mavericks, and so he kind of showed me the rope, showed me what to do, but th- I started at the same time sharing some information with him, what I knew about surf forecasting, and right, it was. 90 right about 95 the internet really started actually right before then i remember i was working in florida in 92 to 92 to 93 uh working in a technology center and one you know there's a group of us that surfed and one day this guy goes come back here to this room i got something i want to show you and i'm like okay and we go back and you know into this uh, like a, a laboratory and <laughs> stacked with computers and off in the corner he's got this little computer set up and he goes I want to show you something this is the internet <laughs> and I go oh what, what's that how I'm interested and he go and then instantly he goes click and he brought up a satellite photo and then he brought up 
and here's the picture from a half hour before this, and here's the picture for a half hour before that. And all of a sudden I go, oh, my gosh, we have access to satellite photo real time now. And he goes, oh, it's even better than this. And then he popped up another page, and it was buoys. You know, and it was all basically it, it's the equivalent of the dark web today. None of you know, but there was nobody knew about it. No one had access to it. But it was like, oh, my gosh, here's the buoy data. I don't have to sit every hour and wait for some <laughs> box to tell me I can get all the data and I can get all the past data. And I got the satellite photos and I got the weather charts. And I don't even know that there was any good rudimentary wave models yet. But that was just, you know, that was about two years before I moved here or a year before I moved here. And as soon as I got here, it was like, boom, all right, got a computer all set up. And then I started, you know, I started doing forecasts for Mavericks, you know, just for my own personal pleasure. And then it was like, well, God, if the Internet's there, I can build a page. And I literally built a single page forecast and I updated it every night and posted it out. And I posted it up one night and, you know, I got five people looking at it. And the next night, there was 300 people looking at it. And the next night after that, there was 1,000 people looking at it. I go, oh, my gosh, there's a market here. <laughs> so, and then it, it just sort of spun out of control well, since then. Um, so I have heard a rumor that you have a room full of computers and forecasting equipment. That's true. <laughs> Bring me into this room. Uh, so I got a room in my house. It's it's basically turned into like a server room. It's got like eight, eight computers running, twenty four by seven. They're all running the wave models that I that are posted on StormSurf and the buoy data. So I'm downloading all, and I got a big fat pipe running into the house, uh, internet connection. So basically, I'm sucking all the data from NOAA and the the buoy center and wherever crunching it all using code that I wrote in that room and then FTPing it up to a couple of servers that I have up in the cloud so that everybody can can view the data and look at it. I'm going to fumble my way into this part of the conversation, but how do you write code that crunches those raw numbers? Is there any way that you can explain it to a layman like myself? Sure, because I so I taught myself how to do this. It's 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 it really wasn't rocket science. If you have a little bit of background, I'm kind of an analytical guy. So, and my wife, she's big into reading manuals and doing all this kind of stuff. But I was never that kind of guy. I like people to show me. But she sort of beat it into me. Just read some of the manuals. And, and so, so I ran into this software. It was a huge find for me one day to realize that there was some free uh, open source software that was available that you could use to draw weather charts with. And so I was fumbling around with it, and I got a buddy at work to sort of help me get it installed on my computer. And I just downloaded the demo from the website, and it had, you know, it was a basic, they call it a grib file, but it was like a database of data in it. And, and, I, and they had instructions for the scripting language, the language you use to pull the data out of this database file using this open source software. And I tried it. It took me about two days, and all of a sudden, boom, I had a wave model, model in front of me. And it wasn't somebody else's wave model. It was I could control the colors. I could control the scaling. I can control the view. And it's like for years I'd been pulling my hair out because I didn't like the way NOAA's wave models were, were. I couldn't use them because, you know, it said seas are going to be 40 to 50 feet if, you know, in the color red and they're going to be 30 to 40 feet. You know, I wanted I wanted to know exactly how high the seas were at the highest point inside the fetch area of all these winter storms that, that, that tracked across the North Pacific. Now, all of a sudden, I had the keys where, oh, I can go build this all myself. And then I went nuts for literally 10 years, r learning the scripting language, writing the code to build all the models that are on StormSurf today. And then showing up at the swells and zinc before yeah, anybody else. It. Yeah. So, so that was really the key. So you use the wave models to understand what's going on dynamically inside the storm, right? And then the swells radiating away. You have all your numbers. You write out, okay, it's going to arrive here at Saturday at 11 a.m., right? And then 
you that's a forecast though that's not reality that's just projections right so you need some other instrument to know when it's actually hitting well the buoys up and down the coast are the way to confirm your forecast right and the buoys that were a little bit north of half moon bay start picking up on the swell earlier in fact there was a buoy it's not there anymore 46006 which was 600 nautical miles off the coast Okay, that would literally pick up the swell 24 hours before it hit Half Moon Bay. So using that buoy and a couple other buoys, you could kind of really fine tune your forecast down to a science where to the point where you could see the swell coming, paddle out. It's dead flat, not a ripple in the ocean. Paddle out, say, okay, in half an hour, the first swell's going to hit. You're in the lineup. You're ready to go. Boom, there it goes. And you're surfing with you and the two or three buddies that you told it was going to happen. And you could start scoring waves without a bunch of people. You snowboard too also, right? Ski, actually. Ski. Yeah, ski. Old school. <laughs> yeah. How was your winter this year? It was pretty good. We yeah. got we got deep powder a couple. And so I play the game. So the, the surf game. So this is part of what I call the game, right? Like, go get the surf. And it's not just get waves, not just show up at the beach. Oh, there's waves. I'm going to go out surfing. No, it's I want to be there either right as the swell's hitting, like at Mavericks, you know, or in Southern Hemi swells because they last multiple days. I want to pick the three-hour sweet spot where it's going to be the very biggest the sweet part of that entire swell. And then I play that game with skiing as well. Okay. You can see all the storms lined up. They're going to hit Tahoe. Then it's the question of how do I get up there before they shut down I-80 because it's whiteout conditions. When's it going to get that, you know, when's the last second I can sneak through the door before it shuts and be in position to score mad powder. And so now I, I, I'm building a whole series of uh, weather models and snow forecast models all for not just Tahoe, but, you know, pretty much anywhere. For StormSurf? Yes, on StormSurf. Okay. So, so, there, so there's a whole section, a, a building section on, you know, snow forecasts. Amazing. What's the snow level going to be? You know, how high is it going to be? Rainings are going to be snowing. How much snows are going to be? When's it going to start? How long is it going to last? What's the accumulation going to be? You know, and the snow level's key. You know, is it going to be cold enough so it's not just wet, heavy snow, but really light, fluffy, uh, you know, uh, steep and deep powder? Yeah. Um, as a result of looking at swells for so long, have you noticed any... Um, changes any climactic trends that you have seen kind of long term given that you've looked at this for so long so this gets into the whole discussion so let let's i won't address that directly yet but then i'll talk about uh from an educational standpoint there's uh long arching patterns that affect swell potential during any given season. The most obvious one is El Nino, La Nina, right? And everyone knows now that when El Nino is in play, the odds for larger, longer, and stronger storms goes up significantly. Why? Um, because what El Nino does, actually it pushes in the northern hemisphere, it pushes the jet stream further south, it pumps piles of energy into the jet stream, it changes the uh, configuration of the ocean temperatures on the equator. It takes what normally is cold water off of Ecuador, the Galapagos Islands, and makes it much, much warmer than normal. And what that in turn does is pump... Uh, I'll call it energy, into the jet stream, making the energy stronger, making the troughs deeper, more longer lasting. And then that supercharges the winter storms, which in turn then creates more surf and blah, blah, blah. And also more precipitation and snow relative to California. Conversely, La Nina does just the opposite. It makes water very cold off of Ecuador and the Galapagos Islands. It basically cuts off the energy flow to the jet stream. The jet stream drifts north. There aren't many troughs. The storms dry up. And you have this propensity for a lot of high pressure, which is exactly what we're suffering through even in the summer now. Strong high pressure off California, a lot of north winds, and a lot of wind swell. Okay. Now going back to... Uh, long-term climactic changes. Ah, yes. So then there's part two of this. There's, so there's multiple waves that are interacting, and, I, and, and this is sort of where I wanted to go. There's a thing called the Pacifical, Pacific Decadal Oscillation, which seems like it's an El Nino-La Nina cycle, right? So the El Nino-La Nina cycle runs 
five years El, you know, towards El Nino, five year, you know, or let me put it this way, five, five years between El Ninos, right? And in between there, there's there's a La Nina for a couple of years. So we had a big El Nino 2014-15 into the early part of 2016, and then for latter part of 2016, 2017, and 2018, we're in La Nina, and now the thought is maybe we're heading back into an El Nino-dominated pattern. Okay, so that's a five-year cycle there. Now, there is supposedly a longer cycle, a 15 to 30 year cycle called the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, which runs the same way, meaning 20 to 30 years of an environment favorable for storm production and followed by 20 to 30 years of a period unfavorable for storm production. So the last good I'll call it uh, El Nino-like Pacific, Pacific, Decadal, Pacific Decadal Oscillation, ran through 1997. The El Nino that happened in the winter of 97-98 was theoretically so strong, it basically caused the atmosphere to discharge all its latent heat energy and threw us into a long-term La Nina bias cycle, which we're in still to this day. The thought is that this year, or maybe even last year, this last El Nino that happened in 2014, 15, 16, might have been the turn towards the start of a new long-term El Nino-like version of the PDL, which would be good. What that means now is for the next 20 to 30 years, if it's true, that we're going to be in an environment much more favorable for storm development and therefore precipitation and and surf and all the rest of it. But the problem is you can't confirm, you know, you don't know that since it's a 20 to 30 year cycle, you won't know you're in it until you're about five years in because it's a very noisy kind of cycle and it takes a long time to see the peak or the valley in that cycle. Gotcha. What are your thoughts on CO2 affecting climate change? Well, so, uh, and more importantly, the surf. Well, so okay. So let's do it that way. I, I, I like to play a game because I don't like to. You, you can't change people's minds. You can't beat beat them over the head with your opinion because it just doesn't work. I've tried. <laughs> you know. So uh, everyone's entitled to their own opinion. But assuming that CO two is warming the planet. And there seems to be a good amount of data that for sure says CO2 levels now are considerably elevated compared to what they were 20 to 30 years ago. And assuming the science of CO2 being a greenhouse gas and causing more heat buildup on the planet is real, which I think there is a fair amount of data to suggest that there is, then the net effect of that is the ocean should be getting warmer. And there's plenty of evidence to suggest that the oceans are getting warmer. So, for example, um, to monitor El Nino or to uh, what, what, what NOAA has basically is these charts that say, here's the average temperature of, and they literally take the entire oceans of all the planets, break them down into what they call grib cells, basically a, a, a 60 by 60 or a 30 by 30 nautical mile cell. They say, here's what, and, and they've got a 30 year climat, climatic history for every square inch of every ocean on the planet. Okay, and so from that, you can say, okay, for this time, and they do it literally every day or every week. So you say normal temperatures for the area on the equator in, you know, the El Nino region normally are this right in April. And then in May, they're normally this in June. They're normally this. And what they found is what they consider normal now, starting about 15 years ago, if the norm if they use the normal today then we'd be in a perpetual el nino because the ocean has warmed and warmed and warmed so they have to keep reestablishing the baseline for what is normal and bumping it up now we're not talking a lot we're talking a tenth of a degree a quarter of a degree but to put things in perspective the difference between normal and el nino is half a degree over 9 months so a tenth to two tenths of a degree is the difference between what what used to be El Nino is now the new normal, or the new normal would be a perpetual El Nino. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Thank okay. you. Thank you. 
How would you recommend that someone take the next step in swell forecasting? Yeah. Going to, to storm surf, I've found that it's, um, it's easy to get bogged down with too much. And um, can you provide me uh, just kind of like a step-by-step process of the way that you would move through the site and the way that you would kind of get a white belt to get from the white belt to the blue belt, brown belt, black belt. Sure. And and that's a great point because there is so much data and it, it sort of reflects what I, my learning curve over the past 20 plus years of uh, going down a lot of different rabbit holes and learning a lot. But for the, for the average person, the best thing you can do is go find the significant wave height chart for the Pacific Ocean. And that basically, you know, if you go to any of the major sites and you hear surfers talking, there's a big purple blob under New Zealand, or then that's what you're looking for. And that you just look at that every day and you can basically track storms and you can then you, you know, you can say, oh, a storm is generating 30 foot seas under New Zealand or you look for the next and the, the models go out for a week. So you just go look every day and see what the forecast is for the next week. And if if there's no purple or there's no reds or there's no nothing, then you know, oh, my, this isn't looking good. Now, remember, too, like for New Zealand swells, it takes over a week for the swell to get from New Zealand to here. So if you're looking at the chart for a whole week and you see nothing and then you realize even after the end of that, you need another week on top of that for the for what if there were a swell for it to radiate here. That basically means a two week flat spell. Likewise, if you see the chart all lit up with purples, you know, hey, there's going to be at least a week of surf coming up. Perfect. Step one. So now I've been looking at the charts. What's step two to to hone in further? So if you want to get a little more serious, you write down not in infinite detail, but you see a purple blob on the chart. Oh, the key thing on the forecast charts, this is the other thing, is the zero zero hour forecast. That is today or the hindcast today, whatever today is, you know, at noontime, let's say the, the first image in the sequence is what's really happening right now. Everything else is a forecast. And for so for that matter, you cannot believe anything that is not happening right now. That's the only thing that is objective reality. There's a difference between reality and forecast, right? Forecast is just this thing in the mind of the computer. It made up that maybe this storm is going to evolve two days, three days from now. But as we all know, if you watch the charts every day, you see, hey, there's going to be a storm five days from now. And then the closer you get to that five day, that storm disappears, right? So it's only the very... The zero zero hour hindcast is labeled on storm surf. That's the only thing that matters. Okay, but so so you get if you look every day, you start getting a sense. Well, well, is the model lying to me on the forecast, or is it doing a pretty good job of tracking with reality? Because sometimes the models do great. They'll say a week out from now we're going to have a big old bomb storm, and sure enough, it materializes or a slight variate. You know, it's going to vary, but it actually materializes. Other times they'll show. You know. Big bomb storm forming, and the very next run of the model, that storm's completely gone. So you got to get us, you got to, you can't just look once and forget about it and then come back a week later and go, okay, where's my swell? It ain't going to be that way. So, so step one is look at the models. Step two, look at the models more than once a week, maybe three times a week. You know, in your spare time, you know how long it takes to look at a model once you once you have it have it listed in your favorites. You can look at it in 15 seconds once a day, right? Instead of getting your weather by flipping on the TV, you get your weather by looking at the computer. You build up your little links, and you're good to go, right? And if you're a surfer, looking at the wave model is the key thing to do. You look more often, and if you see significant activity, maybe write it down. That that'll get you to your what, maybe a, uh, a yellow belt or something like right. that, right? You know, write down, and then the next day come back and go, is that storm still there? It was supposed to be there Wednesday at the 18Z run of the model. No, it's not there. Oh, well, okay, scratch that off the list. But if it's there the next day when you look, oh, that's good news. And then you look again and again, and it's there for multiple days, and then it actually forms as it was supposed to. Then you know that the train has not only come to your station, but it's left the station and is heading down the track towards you. 
purple belt. Then you start getting into the deep end of the pool. Then you start going, <laughs> okay, how do I know what my swell window is? Okay, and we get into this thing called great circle charts. So you have to know what the spectrum, if you go to the beach and look out in the ocean and you look to the north and you see, oh, there's land up there. Like if you're in San Francisco, you look up and go, there's Point Reyes. Okay, so obviously swell can't come any further north than that piece of land. I look down south and I go, oh, there's uh, Pigeon Point down there. So it can't come from any further south than there. So I go, okay, I've got this. You know, you can hold your arms out and go, this spread, but I don't know what that is. What is it, maybe 90 degrees or maybe it's a little more? But that doesn't really tell you anything. So there are charts on storm surf that literally show from various places along the California coast the numerical value. So like for Half Moon Bay, I'll say, the furthest north swell you can get is 319 degrees. And that's because, you know, uh, Cape Mendocino blocks some of it off. And there's, there's basically land in the way. Swell, swell doesn't, for the most part, bend around land except in very localized conditions like uh, a pleasure point. Yes, a north swell will bend and wrap around into Monterey Bay. But over long periods, it doesn't bend. It significantly loses energy. Lose, it doesn't lose period. It loses amplitude as it refracts into Monterey Monterey Bay. Right. And is it true that um, sometimes lower period swells can wrap in more easily than long period swells? They can because they, they're, they're not moving as fast. Uh, they don't feel the bottom as much, but they, they are a little bit more flexible but in terms of their uh, ability to tolerate bending. So Half Moon Bay, for example, you said 219 is uh, about... 319 three, is nine, the Sorry, north 319. End. Yeah. Um, but a swell with a lower period might wrap in a little bit easier. Yeah, wind swell might, cause, uh, but most of the wind swell we get is... Yeah, 315, 310, that sort of thing. So it's in the swell window. Oh. There's other stuff going on out there, too, though. If you have islands out in front of you, they block swell. Half Moon Day has the Farallon Islands out there, okay? And then what most people don't know is that north of the Farallon Islands, there's water. You look at a map, you go, oh, there's plenty of water there, but it's not that deep of water. It's like 200, 200 meters deep, or not 200, 200 feet deep, okay? And this goes back to the period thing. The longer the period, the deeper the swell feels bottom like a i'm just doing this off the top of my head but a 20 second period wave actually the energy from a 20 second period swell hits the bottom like down 2,000 feet deep so if you if you've got a 20 second period uh, swell trying to come through 200 feet of water it's going to uh, uh, create a significant amount of drag and suck the energy out of that swell and basically break it up okay so uh, an area with deeper bottom will allow the swell to move through it with less decay. Is that correct? Exactly, okay. right. Yeah, so m most swells are traveling through open ocean, right? And so you're talking thousand, you know, 10,000 feet deep oceans. That's not an issue. It's as the swell starts moving into shallower water. Now, the cool thing about Monterey Bay is it's incredibly deep in the middle, which is great for not affecting the size of southern hemi incoming southern hemi swells until it gets really close to the coast. Where are some areas that have really deep um, bottoms of the ocean and produce really powerful swells besides oh. Monterey? Oh, Hawaii is the classic example, right? Basically, it's a it's the tip of a volcano sitting up in, I don't know how deep it is, over 10,000 foot deep waters. So there's very little swell decay there. And likewise, Tahiti, you know, any of those sort of islands. Now, um, Likewise, relative to California, the Tahitian Islands and French Polynesia are, in fact, a barrier for swell radiating up to California because there's a whole bunch of islands there, and they're all very shallow and all strung together. That's called the Tahitian Swell Hat. The Tahitian swell shadow. And literally, you can look on the wave models if you look closely and see big sw uh, swells that come up through there. They get broken out, and there's literally this gap in the swell that's completely blocked by Tahiti and the surrounding islands. At what degree? 
Um, relative to here, it starts at about 211, and it'll go to 197.8. On so there the, can be shadowing from the Tahitian Islands anywhere in those in that range. In that range. And it can be pretty significant. I mean, some of the energy gets through, um, and those two numbers are the extremes. If you're uh, above 210, 211 degrees, it's completely unshadowed the whole way. And if you're below 197.8, you're in the clear. In between there, yeah, you know, you get some shadowing. But, you know, storms don't come, originate, or swells don't originate from a single point, right? The storms move typically from west to east. So a storm may go under New Zealand, unsh- blasting energy towards us, unshadowed. Then all of a sudden it keeps going east, goes behind the shadow. And if it's strong enough and last long enough, it can pop out the other side of the shadow and then start pushing energy up to us from, you know, 197 or and, and less. While we're on the subject of deep water bathymetry, what do deep water canyons do? So deep water canyons can, act, well, they can focus as well and there's certain areas around here and I won't name names that do very well at uh, 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 if swell energy travels through the Monterey Canyon it can land at select spots with very little loss in size compared to other locations five miles either side of it and where are some other areas that have deep water canyons uh, Nazare for one <laughs> that's a real obvious example giant giant deep water canyon sitting off there uh, energy comes barreling right through the canyon right at the point there and you know you've all seen the results and what does the reef at Mavericks look like so the reef at Mavericks looks I'll say very similar to the reef to one of the reefs at Pleasure Point in that it's a big finger of very relatively shallow water going straight out into the ocean, I'll say from the west, but you know. Um, But it's the thing is, it gets progressively deeper as I mean it starts probably two miles off the coast it might even be more than that it's like this odd weird uh, finger of shallow water that gets progressively deeper but the cool thing about it is the swell because like a 20 second period swell can feel the bottom at 2,000 feet so you're two or three miles off the coast and even though there's no obvious signs of anything going on because the reef starts getting shallow out there it helps progressively and slowly focusing the swell on its ultimate spot where it's going to break which is the reef at mavericks and the same thing happens here at pleasure point all right i'm gonna let you go soon but brown belt black belt ah if you want okay quick black belt get into the jason 2 satellite imagery so there's satellites rotating polar orbit around the planet beaming radar down to the ocean surface and they fly over these giant storms so just instead of looking at the wave model going out it says it's 40 foot seas you can look at the jason 2 satellite data and literally it's like every hundred feet it's tapping down and getting you a sea height measurement inside the storm and we do some of this on storm surf in the forecast and on our video forecast we present the data and say oh and a 15 reading average in the height of there was a jason 2 satellite pass right over the core of the storm uh, confirmed sea heights were 38 feet where the model said seas should have been 35 feet so the model is under calling it the swell will likely be bigger than what the model said Right, so that gets you into the heart of the storm where you have the most accurate picture of what's happening. Exactly, and you need to get into the heart of the storm to get into the heart of the swell. That's our show. If you enjoyed it, you can get in touch with Mark on Instagram at StormSurf. Leave him a nice comment. Uh, If my guests get a bunch of nice comments from the listeners, uh, they are incentivized to come back on the show. So it takes two seconds, and it helps. Also, if you want to help me out, you can leave a rating on iTunes um, because that's one of the only ways that initial guests, when I reach out to them, know if they want to come on this show. You know, they look at the iTunes ratings, they see a bunch of nice comments, and they're like, oh, cool, maybe I'll do that. So it actually does matter to write that stuff down. This is an ad-free podcast. Thank you to everyone who donates on Patreon. If you feel inspired, you can click the link on my website, kyle.surf, or 
click below the bio here, buy me a cup of coffee on Patreon. And if you want to send in a listener recording like Don did at the beginning, you can do that on the Voice Memos app on your phone. Tell me who you are, where you're listening from, describe the atmosphere, and maybe something you're excited about these days. And you can email it to info at kyle.surf. That's info at kyle.surf. And I would love to play it at the beginning of the show. I'm going to play you out with a song by one of our listeners. This is uh, by a band called Sleep North America. And the song is very fitting. It is called This Storm Will Go For A Long Time. Thank you, everyone, so much for listening. Hope that you get a ton of waves this next week. And if you're not near an ocean, I hope that you can get in a lake, river, stream. What's the difference between a stream and a river? I've always wondered how fast it's going, how much water there is. Or get in a bathtub. promise it will make your day better. Much love, everyone. I'll see you soon. Storm will go for a long time